Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Society for the History of Children and Youth's featured book series. I am Jennifer Robin Terry from the University of California, Berkeley. Today is September 15th, 2018, and I am speaking with Dr. Megan Burke, who is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, about her book, Fostering on the Farm, Child Placement in the Rural Midwest. Fostering on the Farm was awarded the 2017 Vincent P. DeSantis Book Prize by the Society for the Historians of the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. Welcome, Dr. Burke. Thanks, Jennifer. Good morning. Good morning. So I wonder if we might begin with you telling us a little bit about your intellectual journey on the subject of child placement. How did you come to the topic and what inspired you to write this book? The book initially started out as a dissertation. Um, And the dissertation, as it existed uh, when I finished my degree at Purdue, is quite a bit different than the product that ended up becoming Fostering on the Farm. But I started with just a general curiosity about what happened to institutionalized children who maybe didn't live in places like New York or Boston or Philadelphia. There was so much good scholarship about those places, their institutions, how they handled, um, you know, an increasing number of children who needed homes or just needed, you know, kind of temporary services. And being from the Midwest and being a historian of the Midwest um, and somebody who whose training was in rural and agricultural life, there was a body of scholarship, albeit much smaller, about rural childhood. But it seemed as though there was a gap where we didn't know much about what happened to families in distress in rural areas Mm. or children who were in rural areas who needed the same type of care uh, that city children needed. So that was where the dissertation kind of landed me. And as I, I think as those ideas matured and as I had some time to think about it further, I wanted to do a better job of thinking about the role that farming and agriculture played in the, in the lives of those children. Uh, and so that's kind of the trajectory that the book took off in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was a much more successful product than the dissertation, which is delightful, but is a very dry kind of institutional <laughs> history of places in the Midwest. So that was, that was the hook that got me started um, for what became Fostering on the Farm. Awesome. That's great. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your main argument uh, and the contribution it makes beyond just uh, filling a gap? Yeah, I think that we can use the popularity of the idea of farming and farm homes to trace a, a kind of parallel arc with 
the proto-welfare state for dependent children. Um, there actually is this very strong body of content and information about people all over the United States talking about how a life on a farm for a child was the best life. And so it's a, it's a policy driver. Even before there are official policies, it is driving the orphan train movement. It's driving institutional placements. And it's used in this very kind of florid language. At the same time, historians of agriculture have always identified the farm as a dangerous place for children. It's a site of overwork. Um, it's a site of tools and animals and equipment that can be treacherous. It's a site of underschooling and things of that nature. So it's this odd juxtaposition of people positioning the farm as both savior but also as problem. And the trajectory of the farm as being positive over the course of the late 19th century maps the rise and fall of people wanting to put children onto farms. And I think that's a really important idea that even for urban institutions, many of them wished kind of longingly that they could get a more rural environment for children. And so that idea starts to taper off at around the same time that people are making it pretty clear that children raised on farms are behind. They don't get enough schooling. They are not as healthy as people thought they were. Um, there's this big World War I reveal about the health of farm boys. And it's at that very similar moment where people start to rethink the child welfare policy that has been in place, where that if you could, it was the right choice to put children with a farm family. And that kind of trigger moment helps to cause. I don't think it's a singular cause, but it certainly, I think it is a large contributor to people and entities and policymakers coming up with a different way to handle their dependent children, whether that's going to be through additional forms of direct aid, or we're going to use paid foster homes. They're, they just start to concentrate on, we need to look for something that is different than what we've been doing. And the farm is a huge component of that, both its popularity and then its decline in popularity. Um, and so that's the argument the book makes. It tries to make this very explicit connection that existed previously. It just didn't get talked a lot about. Um, but it really tries to provide lots of examples of how that, uh, how that came together. So child placement on the farm becomes a catalyst for new child welfare policies. It does, because it fails. Um, you know, the notion that farm people are somehow inherently better equipped to raise children, that they somehow have a better kind of moral fiber, those things are fantasy. They're not real. And they are slowly revealed as more and more children end up on farms, more and more people realize that that is maybe not the safest place for children to be. Um, and they also enter that scenario at a time where the labor market is changing on farms. And so people need workers, but are not able to pay the going wage. Mm. Uh, they want seasonal workers and not full-time workers. And so children, older children especially, really fit that niche. So these children become very cheap labor. They do indeed. Interesting. Fascinating. Well, this week I, I actually lectured in my California and the West class on the family farm 
And right. I I mentioned your book and the undergrads right. were just fascinated and, and they were outraged. How can this not be considered child labor? So Yeah, from a from a distance it really does seem as though and I think that's true when students hear about a lot of the child welfare practices of the past, that anytime there is a a kind of a forced separation of child from parent and it seems unnecessary or that the distance has been magnified in some way unnecessarily, it really hits our modern ears as being doubly offensive. Um, and it's, it's become a very, unfortunately, a very relevant topic currently in the United States, uh, this kind of revisiting of what it means to separate parent and child, um, especially when a parent wants to be in that child's life um, and does not represent a clear and present danger. Um, so it's, it's yes. been very strange in the last few months to be, um, not, not to have my work be relevant, but to, to have people considering the ideas again in a more modern way. Yes. Yes. This is hugely important. Um, now that you've had some time to step back from fostering on the farm, I wonder what avenues do you see for future research, either your own future research or for other scholars to pick up and, and kind of run with some of these ideas? I don't, uh, I don't see myself necessarily revisiting the topic explicitly, but if I, if I had a sort of dream of what might come next, I would love to see somebody do a more statistically driven study of placing out. Um, I'm not a statistician, and I was not trained as such. So there is some quantitative data in the book, but it is not, it's not done in the way that I think it could be maybe best utilized by a wider array of scholars. Mm. I would love to see someone take a swing at that and use manuscript census records and institutional records to really quantify uh, how many children we're talking about kind of in the system, how many children, you know, what the average placement length is, um, you know, give us a firmer number about the average number of times a child was placed and see how that changes based maybe on gender or age or race or ethnicity. Um, so if somebody is out there actively seeking an idea, uh, I think that that would be an enormous contribution. And I think it's something that scholars would continue to go back to and reference for a long time to come. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would be extremely useful. I could have really used, used it a few <laughs> years ago. Um, it just, it was not the kind of history I was setting out to write, but it is a very, to me, a very apparent and a very contributory project that's waiting to be done. Oh, wow. That's great. So you know that the data is out there. It just requires someone who has that methodology in mind to kind of harness it and then put yeah, it out there for the, the rest of one us. One of the great things about the records that I used is that they're public. Mm. I think so often, especially for historians of childhood and youth, we can run into problems with privacy law and institutional blocks that have been placed on information. Mm -hmm. And, excuse me, this is not one of those scenarios. A lot of public institutional records for public children's homes are open in part thanks to genealogists mm. who are intensely curious about 
where their family members came from, and they have demanded in some cases that those records be available and that some of them be digitized so that you can see them and access them. Um, so genealogists have opened up um, a whole world of information about ages and institutional stays and things of that nature. They've transcribed records. They've ensured that records have been preserved, um, which is always a huge benefit. So there is a lot of a lot of information available to people who are interested in particularly 19th century um, children's institutions on a public level. Obviously, private institutions have different rules about their records mm -hmm. that sometimes genealogists cannot even cross. But wow. a lot of the public institutions um, have had to make some information available for those people, and so that makes it available to us. Wow. Hooray for the amateur historians. Yes. They're out there doing this sort of, you know, micro-history, local content information that has inform that informed my first book enormously and it, as the second one is kind of underway here they're still helping me <laughs> so i'm very grateful yay that's fabulous so then going back to those early days when you were doing your dissertation research how did you come across these records or why did you decide to look specifically where you started well, I had written a master's thesis that was about Iowa State University and their acquisition of children who were wards of the state. So they set up um, what they called practice houses, and they were for home economics majors. Oh, interesting. But they wanted the home ec majors to have practice parenting. Oh. So they went out and acquired babies. They got them from the state. And they brought the babies to campus, and students helped raise the babies. Wow! And it's yeah, it's a wild, it's a wild thing. Um, I wrote about it for the Annals of Iowa, and I'm going to go back and write about it again. But now, did these children live with the students, they, or they lived on in campus the, in the houses? Yeah, they built like fake houses. Well, they were real houses, but they built practice houses. Wow! And so the students raised the babies for a while, and then people adopted the babies for the most part. But they did some aptitude testing on the babies, and if the children tested low, they sent them back to the state. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, although this wasn't what the project was about, I wondered where those kids went and what was happening to them. So when it came time to start doing dissertation, dissertation research, I didn't want to go back to that project, but it had made me curious about other things. So I started just with a couple of institutions whose records I could access, mm. um, including some clearinghouse records from places like the state of Indiana. A lot of the states ended up monitoring their child welfare systems in a fairly hands-off way, but they were visiting, they were trying to kind of keep track of how many kids were there, and they were providing me with active lists of how many children's institutions were in that state. So I could pull those for places and sort of see the array and the variety. And they were talking and having conversations about we need to get more kids out of this institution and into, into homes. And then I realized they're talking about farm homes. So that sort of started the process, but it was, it was a matter of just kind of wondering, 
okay, so those home economics houses started in the 1920s. If I go back to kind of my academic home, which is the 19th century, where are kids like these babies going? Um, and so off I went to the races. And it, you know, took a while, but I found this very interesting process happening, um, both public and private. But um, fostering on the farm focuses a lot on the public institutions because mm-hmm. uh, it's it's interesting to me that there was a wide array of public children's institutions. I had always kind of associated that as a private charitable domain. Um, but as it turns out, in a lot of places at the county level, at the state level, uh, that was something that public tax dollars ended up paying for. Wow. Wow. This is so fascinating. Would you tell us a little bit about your current project then? Is it an offshoot of this or is it something completely different? What are you working on now? They definitely, they fit together. People will probably not be surprised when they see my name on the second project. I'm writing about poor farms. Uh, Or if you are from the East Coast of the United States, you might know them as almshouses. They almost all had farms attached. So they are agricultural units in addition to being public welfare units. So they came up a lot in fostering because that's one of the places, it's one of the types of institutions that is sending kids out to farm homes. And they're one of the institutions that's doing the worst job and is taking the most criticism. There are reformers who desperately want kids out of poor farms And so they are triggering an institutional building explosion in fostering in the farm. So the the desire to get kids out of poor farms causes counties and charities and all of these entities to build children's homes. Then kids need to be taken out of those and placed on farm homes. But I was fascinated by all of the people I saw in the poor farm records. We have women who are delivering babies. We have elderly people whose children's no, children don't want to take care of them anymore. Um, there are sick people. There are transient workers. It's this kind of cross-section of society at that moment in that particular county. And they're publicly funded. So you have public money being used to support all of these different types of people. And some of them are not very nice. You know, they're not they're not the type of institution where I think any of us would want to willingly live, mm. but they are their own kind of little universe. And I was fascinated by them. So the my next book project is about local social welfare being run through poor farm institutions. Again, sometimes, you know, if people listening have never heard of one, uh, in your area, it might have been called an almshouse. It might have been called uh, the county home. Mm. Uh, sometimes they use the word asylum to describe it, which is very 19th century. Yes. Um, sometimes they were known as the county farm or the county infirmary. They're all kind of the same. And I'm honing in on those that relied on a farm to provide partial support, um, which is a lot of them. Uh, the large kind of urban almshouses of uh, Charles Dickens horror uh, writing are not uh, <laughs> not necessarily what's typical across the United States. A lot of them were smaller, um, a little more intimate, but reliant on a few hundred acres of farmland. So wow. there will be children in the book 
uh, just not in the same way that childhood com- obviously was the driver of the first project. Right. Um, and I think once this project is done, I'll cycle back around uh, to a, a childhood project that I have in mind. But for right now, they make up this just this kind of small wedge. But I do have my previous project to thank for bringing this one front and center. That's fabulous. It's great how these projects build one on the other. That's Yeah, that's it is nice. And it's nice to be able to feel, you know, firmly grounded in something that is social welfare based mm-hmm. um, and that begins in the 19th century. But it's nice. It's going to help me transition. This project will go a little farther uh, into the 20th century because poor farms lasted a little longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a fun, a fun change from the last time. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you. We're about out of time. Um, This has been the featured book series of the Society for the History of Children and Youth. I am Jennifer Robin Terry, and I've been speaking to Dr. Megan Burke from the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, about her book, Fostering on the Farm, Child Placement in the Midwest, which won the Vincent P. DeSantis Book Prize in 2017. Thank you, Dr. Burke. Thanks so much, Jennifer.